We do come to the end this morning of our series on purity. We have thought about in the previous weeks the desire for purity. And one of the things that I said in that sermon was that if we have the Holy Spirit living on the inside of us, we automatically have a desire to live a holy life. It's one of the proofs of our salvation. We also talked about making a commitment with God's help to live a pure life before him. As important as it is to have a desire to do what's right, without a commitment, nothing much comes of the desire. And then last week, we talked about what to do in the moment of temptation, when there we are in that situation, and we're being pulled and tempted to do something that we know we should not do, or to say something that we know we should not say. And so we talked last week about the importance of pausing and buying ourselves a little time, thinking How will I feel if I do that or say that? Trying to think about the long-term ramifications of our actions and then actually making the decision to do the right thing. And yet, how many of us here today, and I know this would be all of us, would have to admit there have been times in our lives where we have not always paused, we've not always thought, and we have not always done the right thing. Instead of doing the right thing, we have done the wrong thing. We have sinned. If you would agree and confess today that you have done the wrong thing in your life at different times, would you let it be known by saying amen? That's all of us. All have sinned and fallen short of God's standard. And sometimes when we sin, we're surprised by our own sins. Man, I can't believe I did that. I'm disappointed in myself. I can't believe I said that. Sometimes we're surprised and disappointed in the sins of other people. I heard a story that I thought was pretty good about a young priest who had finished his seminary education and he had been assigned to his first church and he was partnered up with an older priest and the older priest said to the younger priest, now in the continuation of your training, it's time for you to sit in the confession booth and listen to people as they come and confess their sins to you. So the older priest said, here's what we're going to do. For the first three weeks, I'm going to sit in the confession booth with you. I'm going to listen to how you interact with those who are coming to confess their sins. Now, for three weeks, he said, I'm not going to give you an evaluation. I'm not going to say anything. But at the end of the three weeks, I'm going to give you my evaluation of how you're doing. So the three weeks came and the three weeks passed. And the young priest said to the older priest, how am I doing in the confession booth? And the older priest said, well, you're doing okay, but when people confess their sins to you, you've got to think of something better than wow to say in response to their sins. You're scaring the people off. Wow. You've got to come up with something better than that. And yet sometimes in our lives, we do something and we say, wow, I can't believe I did that. Sometimes we look at somebody else and their sin is public and we see that and we say, wow, I can't believe we did that or they did that. Now, if you'll open your Bible this morning to the book of Genesis, chapter number 38, we're gonna read about the sin that two people committed. The man's name was Judah and the girl's name, the lady's name was Tamar or Tamar. And we read this story, and at the end of it, we say, wow, I can't believe that. Many of us will say today, I didn't even know that story was in the Bible. It is an absolutely amazing story. Now, before we read the scripture, let me give a little bit of the background. Judah, of course, was one of Jacob's 12 sons. He was the fourth son. And Judah came to a point in his life where he married a Canaanite girl. He never should have married a Canaanite. They were off limits to the people of God. 
God had said, don't intermarry with them because they're going to lead you to worship other gods. But Judah had married this girl. And God, though, had nonetheless blessed that union with three children. God gave them three boys. Ur, E-R, was the firstborn. Onan was the second. And Shelah was the name of the third son. Well, as the boys grew up and it got time for them, the first, the oldest son to get married, he married a girl named Tamar. So Ur now is married to Tamar. But the Bible says in Genesis chapter 38 that Ur was wicked in God's eyes and so God killed Ur. And so Judah went to his second born son, Onan, and said, okay, Onan, what you need to do, you need to marry Tamar and you need to have children in honor of your brother who has passed away. And so Onan married Tamar, and yet the Bible says in this same chapter that Onan was wicked too, and so God killed him. And so now Tamar has lost both husbands. Well, as, as, as the story is unfolding, Shelah, the thirdborn, is not old enough to get married yet. And so Judah says to Tamar, Tamar, you go back to your father's house. And when Shelah gets old enough to get married, I will bring him to you. Well, we know that from verse 11 of this chapter that Judah never intended to do that. Judah thought, this girl Tamar is bad news. She's bad luck. She married my first two sons and they've been killed by God. I don't want to subject Shelah to that. But nonetheless, he told her, go to your father's house and when he gets older, you can marry him. And so she did that. Tamar went to her father's house and she waited, and she waited, and she waited for Shelah to get old enough to get married, and yet nothing seemed to be happening. She knew by now he was old enough, and she knew that Judah was not bringing him to her. Well, as the story is developing, we read that about this time, Judah's wife died. And so now he has lost two sons, and he has lost his wife, and the story that we're going to pick up in verse number 12 of Genesis 38 will pick up with that background. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had finished mourning, that is, he had not gotten through the grieving process, but when he had finished the days of mourning, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite went up to Timnah to shear to see uh, the sheep shearers. And so Judah, as he's coming through, working himself through this grief, having lost his wife, having lost two sons, he turns here to his friend and he turns to his work, but notice he did not turn to the Lord for help and for comfort. And that becomes much more obvious as the story goes on. So beginning in verse 13, I'm reading today from the Christian Standard Bible, which I've never read from in a sermon, I don't think, but Last night I read several translations and I think this one just says it so well, but hopefully you can follow along whatever your translation. Tamar was told, your father-in-law, that's Judah, is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So he took off, she took off her widow's clothes, veiled her face, covered herself, and sat at the entrance of Enam, which is on the way to Timnah. For she saw that though Shelah had grown up, she had not been given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He went over to her and said, come, let me sleep with you, for he did not know that it was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me for sleeping with me? I will send you a young goat 
from my flock. Now, I'm going to tell all the girls in the next service, the students, if a guy ever promises you a goat, run for the hills. He's up to no good. But that's what he said. I'll give you a goat. But she said, only if you leave something with me until you send it. What should I give you, he asked. She answered, your signet ring, your cord, and the staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and slept with her. Now watch this. And she became pregnant by him. Now, Tamar has just become pregnant by her father-in-law. See what I'm saying? Wow. We read this and say, wow, this is a messed up story. She got up and left, then removed her veil and put her widow's clothes back on. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, in order to get back to items he had left with the woman, he could not find her. He asked asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was beside the road at name? There has been no cult prostitute here, they answered. So the Adulamite returned to Judah saying, I couldn't find her. And besides, the men of the place said, there's been no cult prostitute here. Judah replied, let her keep the items for herself. Otherwise, we will become a laughingstock. After all, I did not, I did send this young goat, but you couldn't find her. About three months later, uh, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, has been acting like a prostitute, and now she is pregnant. Bring her out, Judah said, and let her be burned to death. Have you ever noticed that we're harder on other people's sins than we are on our own? Judah said, she's pregnant because she's acting like a prostitute. Let her be killed not thinking that he had gone in to a prostitute himself or what he thought was a prostitute. Verse 25, and as she was being brought out, she sent her father-in-law this message. I am pregnant by the man to whom these items belong. And she added, examine them. Whose signet ring, whose cord, and whose staff are these? Judah recognized them and said, she is more in the right than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not know her intimately again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twins in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand and the midwife took it and tied a scarlet thread around it, announcing this one came out first. But then he pulled his hand back. Out came his brother and she said, what a breakout or what a breakthrough you have made for yourself. So she she named him Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread tied to his hand, came out and was named Zerah. It's an amazing story. Judah goes in and has relations with his daughter-in-law that he didn't think was his daughter-in-law. He thought she was a prostitute. She becomes pregnant, had twins. And we come to the end of that story and we say, wow. I mean, if I would have been that, if that priest would have heard this, he would have said double wow on this one. This is just really an unbelievable and a messed up story. And we ask ourselves today, what can we learn from this? Now, remember, in our series on purity, we've thought about the desire for purity, making a commitment to live a pure life, in the moment of temptation, doing the right thing. Now, there's no doubt in my mind that Judah, having been raised like he was raised, had a desire to do right. Had he made a commitment to do right? It's not clear. The Bible doesn't say. But one thing is clear. In the moment of temptation when he should have paused and thought and done the right thing. He didn't pause. He acted impulsively. He didn't think. And he didn't do the right thing. And as a result of that, his life 
got turned upside down. Tamar's life got turned upside down. And the whole thing is just one big mess. And so we're asking ourselves this question today. What can we learn from this? What can we learn about sin and temptation that we can easily apply to our lives? I want to mention several things today. First, when you've been through a heartbreaking situation, you're vulnerable to sin. I think we need to remember that. Sometimes in life, we go through something. Maybe it is the loss of a loved one. Maybe it's the loss of a job. Maybe it's the loss of our health. It's a devastating, heartbreaking situation. And in those moments, we are vulnerable to sin. We know that Satan attacks us and tempts us when we're at our weakest. He tried to get Jesus to turn the stone into bread after Jesus had gone without food for 40 days. Jesus was hungry. And Satan's trying to entice him into sinning before the Lord. So when we're vulnerable, uh, when we've been through a heartbreaking experience, we're vulnerable to sin. Now think about Judah and Tamar and the heartbreaking experiences they'd been through. Judah had lost two sons. He had lost his wife. Tamar had lost two husbands. Think about this. Both of them were lonely. Both of them had a desire for companionship. Tamar had a desire for a baby. She wanted to be a mother, and that had been withheld from her. And she wanted to have the security of a family. And they, Judah, more than Tamar, was looking for an escape from reality. You know, many times that's what sin is. Sin is an escape from reality. Sin is an attempt to ease our pain and to clear our mind and to give us something to think about for a few minutes or for a little while other than the reality of what we're going through at that season of our life. And I'm saying that when we've been through a heartbreaking experience, we're vulnerable to sin. And so when we see other people sometimes do things that it's out of character, it, it doesn't seem consistent with who they are, maybe we should be a little easier on them instead of being hard on them and say, well, but look at what they're going through. Look at some of the things that are happening in their life right now. That doesn't excuse the sin, but it explains the sin. We can't give God an alibi for our sins and say, well, God, the reason I did this is because I'm going through a hard time. It doesn't excuse it, but it does explain it. But I'm saying to us today, when we are going through a hard time, we're vulnerable to sin. We should have our spiritual antennas up and say, in this season, it would be more likely for me to do something that I would not otherwise do than it might be if I weren't going through this time. That's the first lesson. The second lesson is this, your sins will eventually find you out. You see, when Judah and Tamar, after they had had that relationship, Judah went on his way and he thought, well, no harm, no foul. Nobody will ever know what happened. That was done in private. And yet three months later, in fact, if you look in verse 24, about three months later, Judah was told your daughter-in-law, your daughter-in-law Tamar, has been acting like a prostitute and now she is pregnant. And so what happened in secret is now coming out in the open. You can't hide a pregnancy forever. You can't hide it much more than three months. It becomes obvious that you're pregnant, and that's what happens here. And so it reminds us that our sins will find us out. Let me show you a verse in the book of Numbers that I think is very interesting. It just says this in uh, Numbers chapter 32, and be sure your sin will find you out. Listen to that phrase. Your sin will find you out. Say that with me. Your sin will find you out. Sometimes we do something and we think, well, nobody will ever know and it's not that big of a deal. Well, God knows 
and your sin will find you out. I can remember when I was in college at Baylor, my freshman year, I took a speech class. Dr. Polk was the name of our professor, and we met in a large auditorium Monday, Wednesday, Friday morning at 9 o'clock. There were about 300 of us in this class. Well, as the semester went along, there were different times when we had to give speeches. But since the class was so large, 300 people, there wasn't time for 300 people to give a speech like that. You could have never gotten through the row. So they divided us up into groups of about 25 or 30 people. And when it was time for us to give a speech, we just gave a speech to that particular group. Well, one of the speeches that we had been given the assignment of giving was to research a stock in the S&P 500 and and to give a report, and what they really wanted us to do was to get some po- a poster board and to jot and to note how the stock had done through the years. When it went up, why did it go up? When it went down, why did it go down? And so that was our assignment. Well, I chose for that project the stock Johnson & Johnson. And I did, a, I did some research on that, and I, I learned that it's a defensive stock. During times of recession, inflation, people are still going to buy shampoo. So, you know, it's a, it's a good stock to have. And I had done my research and when it was founded and all this. But on the part about, you know, the drawing the graph and the dates and the years when it was up and down, I looked at some charts and I thought, well, you know, I'm not as interested on, on that part of the assignment as I am the big picture. And so I just kind of looked at the charts and I just kind of drew it and, and it was really kind of, I'm not going to say I made it up, but I just did, it was not very precise. I just drew it and I thought, well, I'm going to just say it's, you know, it's, you can obviously see it's gone up and down and up and down like stocks do. But I wanted to make the bigger point that it's a, it's a good stock to have no matter what's happening in the world or in the economy. But the chart I had made looked awful and it just wasn't very good. But I thought, well, the graduate student, graduate assistant who's leading this class, they won't know nor care what happened with Johnson and Johnson in 1952 or 1963. So I didn't think that was all that important. I didn't think anybody would matter. So we're together on that day to give the speech and this person's giving their report on their company, this person on their company, this person on their company, and nobody's done anything about Johnson and Johnson. And so I thought, well, it won't matter that my chart's not very good. This one girl who took the assignment much too seriously. (laughs) She got up and put her poster board on the easel and she had a stick to point at it and she said, today I want to give a report on Johnson & Johnson. (laughs) I thought, man, my goose is cooked right here. And she had the dates and she, it looked so beautiful and it looked so pretty and, and uh, it looked so good. And I had to get up after that and say, well, I, I too want to give a report on Johnson Johnson. As you can tell, I've taken a slightly a different approach because I knew she would cover the specifics and I wanted to give the big picture. And mercifully, the graduate assistant was, was kind and, and didn't give me too hard of a time on that. But I learned two lessons through that experience. Number one, do your homework. And number two, your sins will find you out. Those things that we justified and rationalized, it's not that big a deal. Who knows? Who, who will care? Well, I think God had that girl to do it on Johnson & Johnson, so I would learn that lesson. But remember, your sins will find you out. Number three, and this is so very important, confession and repentance put you in position to receive God's forgiveness. You see, in that moment of temptation, When we have done the wrong thing instead of the right thing, say, man, too late for me to be pure. Friend, it's never too late. God can give us a new beginning. But it begins with confession and it begins with repentance. And we see that in Judah. Look in verse number 26. Judah recognized them, that is his signet ring, his cord and his staff, and he knew 
that Tamar was pregnant because of him. And he said, she is more in the right than I am. She is more righteous than I. What was that? That was a confession. That was Judah's way of saying, I've been wrong. I messed up and I did the wrong thing. And, and then further part of his sin was not just the act, but he said, since I did not give her to my son, Shayla, he had held back his son from her. But notice the next part. And he did not know her intimately again. Now, why did God put that verse, that sentence in that verse? He did not know her intimately again. To stress to us that not only had Judah confessed his sin, but he had repented of his sin. He had turned from his sin. He had stopped doing that. He never knew her intimately again. Confession and repentance put us in position to receive God's forgiveness. Not just confession. Confession is agreeing with God that what we did was wrong. It's, it's, it's acknowledging that to God. But I think some people, they confess their sins. Maybe sometime we've all done this and we think, well, I've confessed, I've asked God to forgive me, but I'm gonna just keep on doing it. Well, that's not right. That's not repentance. Repentance is turning from those sins. Let me show you a verse. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13, one of my favorite verses in the Old Testament. He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. And so we're told here not just to confess our sins, but to forsake our sins and to turn from our sins and God will forgive us and God will restore us. And then the next thing I think is so clear and so interesting to me, with forgiveness, there's always a new beginning. Sometimes we think, well, God will forgive me, but you know, somehow God will always hold that against me. What I, whatever it was I did, he may forgive me and I'll, I'll still get to go to heaven, but my life will never be what it could have been. Well, you don't know that. God, God will give you a new beginning and you don't know what God might do in your future. It's interesting in this story of Judah. From this moment on, after Judah confessed that sin and repented of that sin, from this moment on, Judah became the leader of his brothers. Now, Joseph was the prime minister of Egypt. So Joseph was in another category. But of the other brothers, Judah became the leader. He became the spokesperson. Now, go to chapter 49. I want to show you how this develops. You see, when Judah confessed, not only did he receive forgiveness, but he received a new beginning. In many ways, it was the first day of the rest of Judah's life. And in chapter 49, Jacob, Judah's father, is pronouncing a blessing over all of his children before he dies. And in verse 9, notice what he says about Judah. Judah is a young lion. My son, you return from, from the kill. He crouches, he lies down like a lion or a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter will not depart from Judah, the scepter, talking about the symbol of royalty. And so Jacob pronounces this blessing and he compares Judah to a lion and he says, the scepter will not depart from you. In other words, something very special, Judah, is going to come from your descendants, even though you have messed up and sinned in this way. Why? Because you have repented and you've turned from that and I have forgiven you. Now go to the New Testament, Matthew chapter one. Very interesting. And I want you to see this today. Matthew chapter one, we have the genealogy of Jesus. And I want you to notice something that you may never have noticed before. Let me give you just a moment, let you find this. Matthew chapter one. This is hundreds of years. This is thousands of years after Judah and Tamar had committed this horrible sin. 
And yet, they had been forgiven. And they had received a new beginning. And the pronouncement that Jacob had pronounced on Judah, we see it now coming to pass. Matthew chapter one and verse one, it says, an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so here we have the genealogy of Jesus. Verse two, notice how it is. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac fathered Jacob. Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Now, why does it say Judah? Judah was not the firstborn son. Reuben was the firstborn son. You would think it would say Jacob fathered Reuben. No, Judah, the fourthborn son, by this time had become the leader of the, it might, you might even think it would say Joseph. But by this point, Judah has overtaken Joseph in significance. Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Now watch verse three. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah. These are the two twins that were born out of this sinful relationship. Watch this, by Tamar. And so the mess that took place in Genesis chapter 38 when Judah and Tamar had the relation uh, has now turned into a beautiful thing. That mess had been touched with the grace of God. God's grace and mercy had forgiven that sin. And now we find Judah and we find Tamar and we find Perez and we find Zerah, these two sons, in the very genealogy of Jesus. Now I wanna make a side point. Not that it's an insignificant point. It's just not the main thrust of this sermon today. Even these two boys, Perez and Zerah, who had been born, uh, we would say, out of wedlock. They were not conceived by, by people who were married. They, they were conceived in the way that we have seen this today. It would have been easy for them to have thought, man, the way our lives started, our, our, my, our mom became pregnant with us through her father-in-law, who is our grandfather. I mean, it's just a messed up situation. It would have been easy for them to have said, we, are, we were born on accident. And some listening to this today, you may think, well, you know, I don't really relate so much to Judah and Tamar and the sin they committed. I relate more to Perez and Zerah because I was not born into a loving family. I was not born uh, to parents who were married. And, and you may just think, I was an accidental birth. Listen to me, friend. There may be accidental parents, but there's no such thing as an accidental birth. You and I were born in the will of God, and we were born uh, in the grace and mercy of God. And not only do we find Judah and Tamar here in the genealogy of Jesus, but we find these boys. Now, I'll show you another verse. In, in uh, Revelation chapter number five, we read an interesting thing about Jesus, one of the titles of Jesus. Notice it says, behold, the lion, Jesus is the lion of the tribe of who? The tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And so one of the titles for Jesus is that he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. It says to me that God's grace is greater than our sin. If you believe that, say amen. His grace is greater. The lion of the tribe, not of Reuben, not of Joseph, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the man who went in to his daughter-in-law thinking she was a prostitute, committing what appeared to be 
an unpardonable or unforgivable sin, and yet God's grace forgave that, and God's grace washed that away, and it says that God's grace is greater than our sin. Two other verses in Romans chapter five, notice this, where sin abounded, Paul said grace abounded much more. And then in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter one and verse 18, God is speaking here and God is speaking to a group of people who like Judah had sinned and like Tamar had done the wrong thing. And in the moment of temptation, instead of pausing and thinking and doing right, they had acted impulsively and they had done wrong. And God says in essence to that, I can forgive that. I can cleanse that. I can give you a new beginning. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. The message of the Bible is that God's grace is always greater than our sin. I've called the message this morning, when sin meets grace, what happens? Grace wins and grace always triumphs over our sins. I was thinking even yesterday about all the sins of the people in the Bible. And I made myself a mental list that I won't recite all the sins in the Bible because I don't know all of the sins, but I made myself a mental list of main characters in the Bible who in the moment of temptation did the wrong thing instead of the right thing. Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. Noah got drunk. Abraham lied. Moses killed a man and buried him in the sand. David committed adultery, and to cover that up, he committed murder. Zacchaeus in the New Testament was a dishonest, lying tax collector. Simon Peter got angry in the Garden of Gethsemane, took his sword and cut off a man's ear. And a few hours later, he denied that he even knew Jesus. Paul, before he was saved, had Christians killed. And after he was saved, in Romans chapter seven, he said, you know, the things I wanna do, I don't always do, and the things I don't wanna do, those are sometimes the things I do. What was Paul saying? Paul was saying, before I got saved, I sinned, and after I got saved, sometimes I still sin. And yet we see that in each and every one of those instances, God's grace, God's mercy, God's forgiveness was greater than all of those sins. God forgave those sins. In this booklet that we put out several years ago, 31 Timeless Truths, a thought for each day of the month. On day eight, the theme is that forgiven sins are gone. I wanna read you just a little bit of this. It's both illogical and unbiblical to punish ourselves for sins that God has forgiven and forgotten. If God is satisfied with how the blood of Jesus removes our sins, we should be too. We honor the blood of Jesus by accepting his forgiveness and living like we are the forgiven children of God. We should never condemn ourselves for sins that God has forgiven and forgotten. And then after that, the ten, I'm not gonna read all 10 of these verses, but let me read just a couple of them. Some here today who say, John, I have a desire to do right. I've made a commitment to do right. 
And maybe some would say, even recently, John, in the moment of temptation, I did wrong. Some would say, John, it hasn't necessarily been recently, but in the moment of temptation, maybe 10 years ago, five years ago, 20 years ago, longer than that ago, I did the wrong thing and I've been carrying, the, I've been feeling bad about it all, all that time. Listen to these words from God today. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Isaiah said, you have cast all my sins behind your back. God said, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember our sins. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. John the Baptist saw Jesus coming and pointed to him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, cleanses us from all sin. This whole thing about purity, my, my desire this whole series has been to preach it straight and to hold the standard high and to say this is what God expects, but yet I've tried on all four sermons to preach this redemptively and with grace. Why? Because I need that. And because all of us need that. And I think it's so easy for us to think, oh, because I've sinned and because I've blown it, it's too late for me. Last week, we had our breaking free weekend, a wonderful weekend, and a lot of kids made decisions for the Lord. And I can remember back when I used to be the youth minister here, and sometimes on breaking free weekend, we would have that emphasis, true love waits, and we would encourage all the students to be, to be pure until they were married. And it seems like on the night of those commitment services, there would always be at least one or two students that would come up to me, normally a girl, crying. And they would say to me, John, it's too late for me. It's too late for me to be pure. I've already blown it. I've already lost my purity. And I said to them, listen, it's never, as long as God is on his throne, it's never too late. You can confess that, be forgiven of that, receive God's forgiveness of that, and you can be cleansed from this moment on in the eyes of God. It will be just like you never did what you did. That's God's message to all of us for whatever our sin is. Sometime, you know, first of all, the devil wants to convince us that God can never really forgive us. But if we stand on the word of God and say, well, you know what? God promises to forgive me. I believe he will forgive me. Then the devil comes along with plan B and the devil says, well, God may have forgiven you of what you did back there, but your life will never be what it could have been because of that. And that's why I'm showing you today, <laughs> Judah and Tamar, not only do they get forgiven, friend, they got placed in the genealogy of Jesus. Those people I was missing who's committed, who committed all these sins, think about, let me give you three examples and then I'll stop. Think about Moses, murdered a man. But Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt after he committed that sin. Paul, what did Paul do? Had Christians killed. And yet Paul did what? Paul wrote 13 letters of the New Testament after that terrible sin. David, his sins of passion. And yet it was after the adultery, after the murder, that David wrote some of the greatest Psalms in all the Bible. I think about Simon Peter. It was after he cut that man's ear off. It was after he denied knowing Christ. It was after those sins that he preached that sermon at Pentecost and 3,000 people got saved. And Judah says to me, and Moses says to me, and Peter and Paul say to me that there is life and there is work for us to do after we have sinned and after we have been forgiven by God. One more slide and then I'll stop. 
Here's what God is saying to all of us today. Whoever you are and whatever you've done, there's a place for you in my family and there's work for you to do. Amen? And so, Father, as much as we have a desire to be pure and have even made a commitment to be pure, God, if we're honest, we have to admit we've not always been pure. We have at times been impure and unholy and done the wrong thing. But God, I thank you that we learned today from Judah and Tamar that there's forgiveness. And not only forgiveness, there's a new beginning. God, when, when Judah found out that Tamar was pregnant, that, 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 that his sin had come out into the open, God, there's no way in the world that he could have imagined thousands of years later his name would be in the genealogy of Jesus. That one of Jesus' titles would bear his name, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And yet, God, that's what happened because your grace is greater than our sins. Now, with your head bowed and eyes closed today, I believe somebody here today needs to take God up on his offer to forgive you and cleanse you and to give you a new beginning. And he can and he will if you'll confess your sin and turn away from it, forsake it. Stop doing it. Would you pray this prayer today if you say, John, I want to know for sure that I'm forgiven, that I'm saved. Just pray this. Say, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Forgive my sins and make me a Christian. I ask you to save me. I trust you to do it. And God, I don't, I don't know how. I can't see a way. But God, I'm asking you out there somewhere to do something in me and through me that would cause me to say, wow. Wow. I can't believe that God's grace is that great and that good.